This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, I look at the controversy surrounding the proposed removal of an historic Arthur Street School infant building. Gregor Campbell tells us about a gold robbery worth millions of dollars in today's currency. We discover a policeman's lot is not a happy one. And Bill Southworth looks at the history of shipbuilding in Port Chalmers. And we hear why a South Dunedin street changed its name. Arthur Street School, that's the one alongside Otago Boys High, is Dunedin's first school. The oldest building left standing is the infant block, and it's tagged for removal. Although, as it stands as a symbol of the beginnings of free, secular state education, so far, a plea to leave it where it is has fallen on deaf ears. We're very grateful to Southern Heritage Trust Chair Joe Gaylor for preparing this report. In recent years, Dunedin has developed an air of a place that values its history as a proud city of firsts in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Our citizens understand, but also enthusiastically celebrate, the role their determined ancestral peers played in the emergence of New Zealand's state-funded health and education systems. As evidenced by the visionary efforts of developers latterly choosing to restore rather than knock down our heritage assets. Dunedin is also undergoing a renaissance, which is why recent well-founded concerns that the Ministry of Education may remove a functioning symbol of the history of children's education in New Zealand from its site at Arthur Street School, away from its contextual surroundings, is so baffling. Heritage New Zealand, HNZ, classifies the Arthur Street School Infants Building, believed to be one of the earliest examples of its kind, as a Category 2 building. In 2017, Heritage New Zealand advisor Heather Bockett assessed the building's merits. She reported that the wooden structure had architectural, historic and social significance to New Zealand. In summary, the Infants Building, opened in 1887, is an early example of its type in a school dating back to 1848. When the first European settlers arrived to build a new free society in one of the most remote corners of the world, their children attended Beach School at the foot of Downing Street. In 1864, the expanding school was shifted to Tennyson Street and renamed Middle School which in turn was shifted to its current site and replaced with Arthur Street School. Consequently, at more than 170 years old, Arthur Street markets itself today as Dunedin's first school. At its 150th celebration in 1998, the Infants Building was proudly held up as a potent symbol of the little school's pioneering history. One former pupil from the 1920s remembered staring wide-eyed at the interior of this room, tiered with double desks and heated by pot-belly stoves with blackboards and easels. Embodied in Arthur Street's substantial and commodious infant department, as described in newspaper reports when opened, is also the founding story of free education for all children in New Zealand. 
and a consequential community campaign to prevent overcrowding at Arthur Street. The infant department followed the advent of the Education Act of 1877, providing the first free secular education. But expansion of schools was soon required as classes swelled with new young learners, and overcrowding and fears for children's health became a concern. The Arthur Street Committee's drawn-out battle with the then Education Board eventuated in the Infants' Building construction in 1887, which in turn became a blueprint for separate infants' buildings on grounds at other schools, freeing up space for learners in the standard classes. Bockett's report notes it is not well known how infant health and welfare were so intimately connected with education. The building represents the 19th century's evolving approach to the rearing of children as the future citizens of our nation, writes Bockup. The grandmother of Joe Gaylor, head of the Southern Heritage Trust, was a beneficiary of these education reforms and a pupil of Arthur Street School. Born in 1913 and attending Arthur Street until Standard Six, Florence Doreen Parsons could write as well as anyone with a higher education, competently calculate and pay her bills, and read the newspaper and frequently comment in it. Despite being orphaned as a child, Gran was a sociable, knowledgeable, quick-witted role model throughout her long life. At 14, she left school to work in a Dunedin boot factory, a path taken by many for whom primary school was their only formal education. Her story shows how state education, even with its limitations, gave her skills that collectively helped build the nation of today. And so, yet again, we can turn to Arthur Street School's history to appreciate that. The Southern Heritage Trust believes that within context of its location, the infant's building forms one part of a historic conglomeration of structures representing primary and secondary infrastructure in New Zealand one that removing the building would dismantle. It sits high on the hill next to Dunedin's first cemetery on its southern side, and on the north side the stone structures of Otago Boys High School, established in 1863. A few skips down the hill is New Zealand's first girls' secondary school, Otago Girls High, established in 1871. The school's Heritage New Zealand listing also reflects its architectural merit as a surviving example of a typical wooden school building with original high-pitched slate roof still intact. It was constructed using a standard classroom template designed and supervised by Education Board architect John Somerville, responsible for most Otago schools built between 1877 and 1901. The Trust believes that the removal of the historic infant's building would be especially out of kilter following Jacinda Ardern's announcement last year that our national history is, finally, deemed important enough to be taught in our schools. The plan to be enacted from 2022 and currently under curricular development by the Ministry is that history teaching should also include the story of first contact and colonial development in the 19th and early 20th centuries. What an opportunity for young, imaginative minds of Arthur Street to have history classes brought to life in a tangible, historic classroom. Except, ironically, that's not a vision that appears to have crossed the minds of the proponents of a new school that turns its back on the school's chief historic asset.
The Ministry's public advertisement for the tender process provides no imperative for tenderers to incorporate the infant's building in the design. There is no mention of a requirement to work with a historic and by rights protected building. If retaining the wooden building in situ was part of the specifications for the tender, then whoever tended would need to come up with an innovative way to include the building within the new design and equally satisfy the needs of a growing fit-for-purpose school. The Southern Heritage Trust believes this is entirely possible with the will. Ironically, Recent generous ministry funding to improve one of the historic Otago Boys buildings next door shows the funding precedent has been made. The infant's building needs to be retained on its present site and afforded the recognition and respect its heritage status deserves. It's in relatively good condition. We strongly urge that the Ministry of Education goes back to the drawing board and consults with the wider community, staff and parents. We believe their foresight and innovation, if they tread this path, will be well rewarded, both in terms of the future learning opportunities for Arthur Street's children and the continued maintenance of the city's built heritage. And that report was compiled by Southern Heritage Trust Chair Joe Gaylor. Gold robberies were not uncommon in central Otago in the 19th century, but one took place where you'd least expect it, in a police station. The stolen gold was worth millions in today's currency and had been lodged in the police station for safekeeping. This report from Gregor Campbell. On July 31, 1870, with the Otago gold rush at its height, a large amount of gold and banknotes to be exchanged for gold were sitting in the lockup at the police camp at Clyde. On the morning of August 1st, it was not. It was worth, at modern rates, just over $6.2 million. A reward and immunity for an accomplice were offered by the authorities, prompting this letter to the Otago Daily Times. To the editor, Sir, as our spiritualist friends in this city would probably not be averse to receive £1,250 as the commencement of a fund for the purpose of enabling them to still further prosecute their searches, allow me to call their special attention to the robbery at Clyde. If, by their medium, they can discover the delinquent or delinquents and possibly be the means of recovering some of the gold or notes, they will not only be able to claim the above reward, but will also be the means of doing the public some great benefit as well as obtaining converts to their faith. I am, etc., Cavisham. What had happened to it? It had been removed by an Arrowtown man who had ridden at night to Clyde, removed the screws from the lock of the door protecting it, and headed home with the loot. He stowed it at a number of places along the way and burned the bridle of his horse. The bridle was his betrayer. A local policeman, Constable McGann, tipped off about the overnight fire, found the remains of the bridle and recognised it as the work of a shoemaker rather than a saddler. The Arrowtown shoemaker George Rennie was interrogated by the police and confessed to the crime. He guided the police to where he had cached his stolen wealth. He also offered the information that he had had the help of a Constable McLennan who had told him where and when to find the gold and had cut the lock plate screws short 
to make them easier to remove. Rennie pleaded guilty at his trial. McLennan did not. Rennie claimed that he had received a letter from McLennan offering to show him as much gold as he could carry away. Where was the letter? Rennie had destroyed it. Where were the screws? One had not been removed by Rennie and was offered as evidence, clearly cut short. McLennan was found not guilty of aiding and abetting the theft of the golden cash, but did not stay with the police. In 1872, he was back at Clyde, trying to win gold from the bed of the Clutha by means of a floating caisson using compressed air to expose the river gravel to be shoveled up by the miners and transferred to the surface by an airlock. It was one of a number of inventions attempting to reach the rich gravels of the bed of the Clutha, and while it worked, it didn't make a profit. George Rennie was given six years hard labour, but petitioned the governor and was pardoned. He seems not to be known under that name after his release. The story seems to this author to have an anomaly or two. It was accepted that Rennie had gone to the lockup and cut the screws attaching the lock to the door at some time before the robbery. It was accepted that he had no help from McLennan. So the accepted narrative of the robbery has Rennie going twice to a place where it was illegal to go and also having knowledge of where the loot would be waiting for him. I find that hard to believe, as opposed to him having had help on the inside from McLennan. I am the slightly perplexed Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. The policeman in that story may have got away with it, but another new policeman in Dunedin in the 1960s, Guy Howell, certainly didn't. When constabulary to is to be done, to be done, a policeman's law is not an abbey one. This is a story about my first morning on the beach, so fresh out of the uh, police training school, 1962, 5am start, being set up by uh, other members of the section. So along with other members of Section 4, I was uh, marched up from the police station in line, even at five in the morning when no one around, which is a bit crazy really when you think of it. But uh, the sergeant walking alongside of us and uh, get up to the octagon. I think there was four constables and Sergeant Wilson. At that point, uh, he dismisses us and and we all are supposed to go our own way to uh, various points on the main street and he was walking back to the station for his morning cup of tea, or so I was told. The sergeant's cup of tea was pretty important. So at that point, I was the new boy and I was all wide-eyed and wonderment and first day on the street. And there was a Constable McDonald who was a bit senior to me. He said, well, this is what we do now. The sergeant goes back to the station, so let's play silly beggars for a while. And uh, I think most people in Dunedin would recall the tip-top milk bar corner. And uh, at that stage, they used to have aluminium um, milk cans. And they were very great height for sitting upon. Um, so those of us that smoked in those times, which I guess most young men did, including myself, he said, well, what we do now, no one around, just take your helmet off, undo your tunic, have a fag, sit down, have a fag. So a couple of them did the same. And I thought, wow, this is not bad, first day on the beat, relaxing, only been in the job, 15 minutes. Sitting back, having a fag, blowing smoke everywhere. The other guys, at some point, probably a couple of minutes later, 
strangely got up and uh, walked away and into a doorway. And I thought, this is strange. I didn't think too much of it. And at that point, around the corner came Sergeant Wilson. Constable Howell! And here I am, caught on the milk can, tunic open, helmet on the ground, smoking. Well, did I get a bollocking. Man, set up beautifully by those constables. Never happened again. (laughs) What a lesson. Yeah. By the early 20th century, Port Chalmers had become a major shipbuilding centre. That industry has now faded away, and the Sims Building, the large brick shed on the road between the port and Carey's Bay, is its last remaining relic. Bill Southworth has been looking back at the time when the port was alive with the sounds of shipbuilding. Boat building was taking place in Port Chalmers even before it was a proper European settlement. Work on the first shipyard began in 1840, when men from the Weller's Whale Station near Otakau felled timber, probably in Sawyer's Bay, and built a 22-ton schooner Anne, and then towed it to Otakau for finishing. By the 1860s, small boat building was taking place in the bays adjacent to Port Chalmers. William Murray built several schooners in his yard, and William Isbester built the catch Simrays in Isbester Bay, as well as the sternwheeler Tuapeka, one of the first steamers to be built in Otago, which was soon in use on the Clutha River. A dry dock trust was set up by the Otago Provincial Council, and by the end of the decade, a private group had built a floating dock on the Beach Street foreshore. Its first customer for ship repairs was the 411-tonne Eleanor, later followed by the 620-tonne California. An onshore graving dock between the port and Carey's Bay was next to be built. The project employed 150 men and cost £56,000, which is about $2.5 million in today's currency. Morgan and Cable used the dock to build ships, which had been sent out broken down into parts from Scotland. The Boojum, the Waihee and the Snark were built in this manner. In another important event, James Mills set up the Union Steamship Company at Port Chalmers, creating a further demand for ship repairs. By the 1870s, the shipbuilding trade for smaller coastal vessels was well underway, and a yard near Boiler Point was turning out vessels weighing 65 tonnes. Thomas Newstub and his sons built fishing boats in a nearby yard. In 1879, Isaac Stevenson, who had come from Australia goldfield of Ballarat, joined Morgan and Cable as a boilermaker. Later, he joined up with John Cook of the Union Steamship Company and formed the Maori Ironworks, and shipbuilding began in earnest. Dunedin became the world centre for gold dredge design and production. Alexander Cable specialised in drawing plans for dredges, the machinery for which was built by Stevenson and Cook, and the wooden holes by the Newstub brothers. Initially, Stevenson and Cook built huge gold dredges to work Otago rivers such as the Waitaki and the Clutha. As their reputation developed, they received orders for dredges from Borneo, Australia and Canada. Tradesmen from Port Chalmers travelled overseas to these places to set the dredges up. The peak of the use of these dredges in Otago was reached in 1903, when 201 dredges were recorded. Skilled tradesmen stayed with the firms for all their working lives. Jim Osborne, for example, was an apprentice to Morgan and Cable, and then worked for Stevenson and Cook for over 50 years. In the early 1900s, Stevenson and Cook built what was to be later known as the Sims Building and owned it for much of its working life. It was part of a complex of buildings containing a forge, a moulding shop, a boiler shop, a smith shop, a machine shop and a plate yard, as well as a dry dock and offices with stores. 
Their plant eventually covered most of Port Chalmers' waterfront, and their enterprise became known as the Clyde of the South, after the famous shipyards in Scotland. Stevenson and Cook utilised the nearby dry docks and generated so much work that the Evening Star commented in 1919 that No firm has played a larger part in the creation and maintenance of Port Chalmers than the company now known as Stevenson and Cook. Its success owed much to the drive of co-owner Isaac Stevenson, who had later become Mayor of Port Chalmers. He recruited skilled tradesmen from the leading shipyards in Britain and then apprenticed local men to them. Through such artisans, the Port Chalmers Yard built up an international reputation for the quality of its shipbuilding and repair work. This work was subject to rigid checks in Britain and was found to be as good as anything done by the leading English and Scottish firms. By 1905, they were fully-fledged marine engineers, boilermakers and shipbuilders. The company prided itself on the modern character of its plant and machinery, earning a reputation for being able to work on jobs of fabricating and repairing beyond the capabilities of any other engineering facility in the Dominion. The damaged ships of Antarctic explorers limped into port and headed for the shipyards. Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Aurora, was towed back to Port Chalmers by the ocean-going salvage tug Dunedin, a vessel built by Stevenson and Cook. In 1907, the firm refitted the steamer Cunha to enable her to tow Shackleton's Nimrod from Littleton to the Antarctic ice, one of the longest tows ever made. Fletcher's took over Stevenson and Cook in 1941 and combined with local firm Miller and Tonnage. During World War II, seven minesweepers were built in their yards and a nearby dry docks. The American Navy was so impressed by the quality and speed of the overhauls on their destroyers Fanning and Dunlap that 43 other US ships were sent for repair before the Pacific War against the Japanese wound down. Stevenson and Cook closed in 1958, and the works eventually passed to Sims Engineering Limited. The Antarctic scientific study, Operation Deep Freeze, brought in US naval vessels for docking and repair, including the destroyers Hissam Mills and Calcutta. However, in 1988, Sims built their last vessel in Port Chalmers, the Tagrupe, and then consolidated their activities with a move to Dunedin. The Sims building is now a sorry sight, to get rid of asbestos that an Eden City Council removed its roof a few years back, leaving the building exposed to the weather. The old foundry is now subject to negotiations between the Port Chalmers Foundry Charitable Trust, which wants to conserve the historic plant and expand the area into a major arts and recreation centre, and the Eden City Council, which is willing to lease it to the Charitable Trust. What the residents envisage is not only to restore the historic foundry, but also to use it as a multi-purpose community centre. There would be a major emphasis on art exhibitions and music recitals, and a new building will attach to the old one to help bring this about. The foundry part would attract curious visitors, particularly those from cruise ships, once these return. Inside, tourists would see restored machinery and an audiovisual and virtual reality show that would recreate its shipbuilding past. Research at the Hocken has established there is a wealth of historic photographs related to the work carried on in the Sims building and the nearby dry docks. These, with explanatory wall panels, will be an important part of the displays. Its pre-European role as a landing site for Walker will also be covered. Displays such as these have become very popular in the United Kingdom. Heritage expert Senior Cousins, who visited here and who until recently was the chief UK government advisor on industrial museums, has had the charitable trust plans explained to him. He said buildings like the Sims are gems worth preserving. 
Research in Australia has shown that the historical industrial sites are a major tourist drawcard. Enterprise Dunedin Director John Christie has said heritage architecture is a core part of Dunedin's offering as a visitor destination. He sees heritage architecture as a unique selling point that offers visitors an insight into the city's fascinating past. The DCC subsequently invited residents to participate in a survey as to what should be done with the building. There were 88 responses. The vast majority, 72%, wanted to see it used for a variety of community uses, and only 20% suggested it should be a car park. The Port Chalmers Foundry Charitable Trust has taken up the challenge. It has asked Heritage New Zealand to give it a listing and initially will seek funds to put the roof back on and to earthquake and strengthen the building. It will then continue to raise money to turn the site into an historical showcase and a multi-purpose arts centre and community asset. I'm grateful to the Latian Church and his book Port Chalmers and its People for some of this material. Finally, I must declare an interest in the project as I am Chair of the Port Chalmers Foundry Trust. This is Bill Southworth for Heritage Matters. Anti-German feelings were running high in Dunedin at the end of the First World War. As Gregor Campbell discovered, it even led to the name of a street being changed. Most Dunedin people will never have heard of Brunswick Street, and there's a very good reason for that. It had its German-derived name changed after the Great War. It's not a particularly long street, placed between Hillside and McAndrew Roads, and built on as high-density housing for working families. From Brunswick Street, 37 men are recorded as going to the war. 11 did not return. The street is a microcosm of experience of the Great War. One of its men, William Carruthers, died on New Zealand's darkest day of the war, 12th of October 1917, when the Otago Regiment was sent through mud against German barbed wire and intact concrete pillboxes with machine guns. He has no known grave. Harry Brand died in the last year of the war in the first advance to liberate the French town of Beaupalme. Another, a career soldier named George Black, suffered shell shock on Gallipoli and was given a base job for the next 10 years until finally retiring, having never recovered from his ordeal. Most came back, of course, but many bore the damage, inside and out, of their wartime experiences. George Booth, a clerk at the Union Steamship Company, returned to his job after the war, but with a permanently damaged left hand. He rose to be the Dunedin manager of the company. Iron moulder Miles Kerrigan appeared in court to answer a charge of failing to provide for an unborn child in 1915. He joined the army and left for the front in January 1917, his record showing that his next of kin had a different surname, the same address, and was described as friend. He won the Distinguished Conduct Medal near Le Quinois in 1918, single-handedly charging and capturing two enemy strongpoints and also rescuing a comrade. Miles married after his return and died in 1958. He lies in a soldier's grave at Anderson's Bay Cemetery. Other soldiers went to war, did their bit, were wounded or not, and joined their comrades, friends and neighbours at one or more of the five welcome homes held at St Peter's Church Hall on Hillside Road. Refreshments were partaken of, telegrams read, entertainment given, dances danced, memories shared, those who were absent remembered. 
and ex-soldiers tried to begin their lives again. After the end of the war, a Mrs. Brown, who had seen four sons go to war and not seen them all return, suggested the name of Brunswick be replaced by Digger Street. This name was not adopted, but at a works committee meeting in July 1921, Mr. Thomas Smith forwarded a letter suggesting the name Loyalty Street and opined that it would be a graceful act on the council's part to adopt that name. With no objections, the change was agreed to. And I am the very loyal Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. This programme has been generously sponsored by the Southern Heritage Trust. The Trust works to protect the city's heritage, particularly its fine old buildings and all the things that make Dunedin New Zealand's heritage capital. The Trust welcomes new members. It can be contacted at southernheritagetrust.org.nz. That's southernheritagetrust, all one word, .org.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.